Matthew chapter 20, we're going to begin in verse 17. It says, And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See that we are going up to Jerusalem. See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Um, now, if you remember back in Matthew 16, and I'm referencing basically the gospel, several of the gospels say, uh, they give us a cross section of Jesus kind of preparing the disciples. as He's going to the cross and basically each, each one kind of gives three times in which he says it. So in Matthew 16, remember Peter says to Jesus, he gives the great commission. You are, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Remember that great declaration, that was awesome. Yeah. And then G- and Jesus responds in verse 17. He says, Hey, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And so Peter has this revelation that Jesus is actually the Christ. He's the son of God. That's amazing. And we all have a picture of who Jesus should be and what he should be doing for us. Right? So Peter had that picture in his mind. Well, right after that in verse 21, It says that immediately upon that revelation, it says that in verse 21, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must, must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And on the third day, rise again. So as soon as they have a revelation that he is the Messiah, the one that the old Testament talks about immediately, Jesus goes, and this is what's going to happen to the Messiah. We're going to Jerusalem. I'm going to get slaughtered and I'm going to rise again. That's what's going, that's what's going to happen. And we know Peter doesn't get it. What does Peter do upon hearing this, the plan of God? Well, he says to Jesus, uh, you know, far be it from you to do any of this. This is not happening. No way. Right. And Jesus responds to him and says, get behind me, Satan. You're not mindful. You're mindful of the things of men, not the things of God. In other words, you've got a a worldly perspective of who I am and what I'm supposed to do. You're mindful of a, your, your, your thoughts of me are a worldly perspective, not a kingdom perspective. And we all struggle with that. This is what Jesus is supposed to be and supposed to do. No, I don't want the cross. I don't want suffering. He's supposed to make my best life now. Everything's supposed to be fulfilled now. I'm supposed to have no suffering. Everything is supposed to be wonderful. He's supposed to enhance my life. He is an app that I add to my life. Right? Because the universe is me. (laughs) Jesus, no, 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 you don't get this. I'm going to the cross. And then he goes directly from there. He says, anyone who's following me must deny themselves, pick up their cross and follow me. Just as I am going to fulfill the will of the father, my heart is to do his will, even to my death. So if you're going to follow me, you're going to have to have that same mindset. It might lead to your death, but whatever it might be, wherever I lead you in losing your life, you will actually find it. And that's what happened to the Lord. He lost his life, but notice every single time he tells him he's going to die. What does he tag at the end? And I will rise again. There's the humiliation before the exaltation. And this is Christianity. This is the cross. This is what Jesus teaches. And so he says, Hey, we're going to Jerusalem. I'm not going to get into the teaching on all that quite yet. And so 
Then in chapter 17, he says it again, and they're gathered in Galilee this time. So they're up there in the north by the lake. And Jesus says to them, the son of man in verse 23 of chapter 17 or 22 and 23, he says to them, the son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him and he will be raised on the third day. And so it's getting closer. He says, it's about to happen. This is about to happen. What I've been talking to you about. And so again, I'm letting you know, but it says here in response in verse 23, it says they were greatly distressed. They heard this and they were greatly distressed. They could, does not compute with what their theology was of the Lord. Now this is not good because remember the whole time they're arguing about who's the greatest, right? And all that kind of stuff. And so this is something they didn't want to even hear. Now this morning, well, this is the third time, verse chapter 20, verse 17 through 19. And Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, verse 17. And he took the 12 disciples aside. And on the way, he said to them, what? See, we are going up to Jerusalem. Now they're probably left the area of the Jordan River. So imagine the Columbia is the Jordan. And they're going to make their way to Jerusalem, Walla Walla. Of course, Right. Well, they're, they're kind of, they're heading up over to Jericho. So they're going to Tushi, right? <laughs> and then they're going to make their way up to Jerusalem. So that's, that's what's happening. They're leaving the river. They're coming on up into the mountains where Jerusalem is. And so it says, we're going up to Jerusalem and, and the roads this time they're packed. Remember, as I shared with you in communion that, that three times a year, everybody had to kind of travel to Jerusalem. And so the roads are starting to get packed. This is probably the end of March. Jesus dies in early April, most likely. And so everybody's starting to crowd along these roads going up to Jerusalem. Chapter 21, by the way, is the triumphal entry. G- the last week of Jesus's life. So we're in the last two weeks of Jesus's life. So from now to the end of the chapter, it's basically the last two weeks of Jesus's life. Well, from chapter 21, it's the last week. And so they're coming to the end of their time. The Lord's been preparing them. And now again, he takes them aside and tells them we're going to Jerusalem. It's not about to it's happening. We are going up the hill. This is it. And the son of man, verse 18, will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And he will be raised on the third day. Jesus is really descriptive about what's happening. How many of you know, like what's going to happen tomorrow down to what's to the T? How in the world, how many of you know how you're going to die? All this kind of stuff. It's like Jesus is laying out exactly Who's going to do it, the manner in which it's going to happen, the process and all these types of things. And what's going to happen afterwards? He's laying it all out. Notice the descriptors there. He's going to be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes. Listen, the leadership, they're going to come grab me. I'm going to be delivered over to them. That delivering means there's going to be a betrayal that's going to happen which was prophesied. They will condemn him to death. In other words, that's what's going to happen. They're going to actually condemn me to death and they're going to deliver him over to the Gentiles because the Jews didn't have the power of capital punishment. They would hand it over to the Gentiles who would take care of that business. And what would the Gentiles do? Well, to be mocked, flogged and crucified. And he will be raised on the third day, by the way, every single time he talks in this context, he always gives the hope at the end. I'll be raised on the third day, but they aren't listening to that third day part, right? They're just like, oh my gosh. And so all these things are prophesied in the old Testament. And there's a lot of them, but if, if you want to have fun this week, go read Isaiah 50, go read Isaiah 53. 
Go read Psalm 22 and a bunch of other Psalms, etc. that lay out all these things, 700 years, a thousand years before the crucifixion of exactly what was going to happen. Verses in Leviticus, Zechariah, other ones as well, that all prophesy these things about how his beard would be pulled out, how the manner in which he would be, he'd be hung on a tree, crucifixion, all this kind of stuff that would go about. Jesus knows exactly what's going to happen to him. And so there's now this shift in intensity. We are headed towards the cross. Jesus is going to the cross. His mind is set on the cross. He's knowing what's awaiting him. And although he's telling his disciples, they're not no comprehende, right? That's not really happening. They're still being mindful of the things of men, not of God, right? Verse 20 case in point. He tells them we're going to Jerusalem. This is happening. We're dying. Well, then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, James and John. And kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? And she said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit at one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. What have they been arguing about the disciples this whole time? Who's the greatest? That's what they're arguing about. Jesus is headed towards the cross with such intensity. And they are worried about what seat are we going to have at the table in the kingdom? Yeah. So they've been arguing about who's the greatest. And as we've seen, Jesus is teaching them about the kingdom. He's teaching about the nature of the kingdom. They don't get it. We don't get it. That their pride has no place in the kingdom. The way that the kingdom of man works is not necessarily the way the kingdom of God works. And he's been doing this over and over. We just had the rich young ruler. Remember the rich young ruler? And he's demonstrating. He demonstrated through that. Listen, it isn't the rich who enter the kingdom of heaven in the kingdom of men. It's the people who have, who have access to things, right? I mean, we're not all hanging out with the president of the United States. Anybody else? We're not hanging out in the governor's office. We are not hanging out with in, in, in places of high authority in general. Why? Cause you don't have influence and power in authority here. But those who do, they do sit in those places, do they not? That's the way the world works. And so they're assuming the rich young ruler goes and Jesus tells him, listen, in order to enter the kingdom, you have to lose that. You, this is not the way the kingdom works. You can't trust in God and trust in your money. I've got to be Lord. It's not saying you can't have riches in kingdom of heaven. He says it's almost impossible because of our tendency to trust in stuff and things instead of to trust in God. And so he tells that man in that situation, unless you give your stuff away, you can't follow, you know, you're not going to be in my kingdom. And he went away sad because he was very rich. And so he teaches the disciples and they go on and they say, well, if that's the case, and who's getting into the kingdom of heaven? He goes, what's impossible with men is possible with God. Praise the Lord. <laughs> Amen. Because we as Americans are pretty well off. By world standards, we're probably considered rich. Wouldn't you say by historical standards, we are filthy tripping over ourselves rich. So Jesus tells him. Then he tells him, hey, man, we've got. 
And they go, well, what do, what do we get? We've given up everything. We've followed you. What, what do we have? What's our promises? You're going to rule on 12 thrones over Israel. That's going to be your future. You'll be taken care of, be, be taken, taken care of. You're going to rule over Israel. And he'll take care of everyone who's given up everything for his name's sake. And so Jesus teaches on that. But apparently it isn't enough for James and John. He tells the disciples, you're going to rule on 12 thrones. You have followed me. You are going to rule on 12 thrones. Well, James and John, Mark doesn't say that his mom's involved. Uh, Matthew does. So guess who's behind all this? James and John. (laughs) And they use his mom probably to kind of have influence with Jesus. So you can see they're like, well, we, it's great that we're sitting on 12 thrones, but we want to sit on the ones next to you. Right. And so they have mom, nice Jewish mom who loves her kids. Come on, man. I love this. He gets her to ask Jesus if one would sit on the right and one would sit on the left in the kingdom and to sit on the right and the left of the one who is the king is a great honor. We all know that, right? It's the greatest seat at the table to sit at the right and the left. And so the self exaltation continues. Jesus is a hundred percent kingdom minded. And the guys are struggling. The guys are struggling, right? We all have our moments too, don't we? And so you can just see it. Jesus says, we're going to Jerusalem. I'm about to die. And they're like, well, where are we sitting (laughs) in your kingdom? it's as if they're ignoring everything he's saying. It's as if they're going, Hey, you're going to go overthrow this government government and we're going to sit with you. But he keeps telling them, I'm going to die. I'm going to die. I'm going to die. So they headed to the cross, but they're still arguing about who's the greatest. Verse 22, Jesus answers them. Um, By the way, uh, who is he answering? Jesus answers, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? Is he talking to their mom? No, he's talking to them because he knows who's asking the question, right? They were asking to be considered great in the kingdom. They wanted to have greatness in the kingdom of God. And Jesus is telling them that they don't understand what that means. How that comes about in the kingdom. Do you want to be great? How many of us just don't want to be great? Well, I mean, some of us don't want to be great. I get that. But I mean, in general, you want to aspire. You want to do great things. You want to reach your potential. You want to push, right? It's within us. And so they're coming at it from a worldly mentality into the kingdom. And Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking for. You want to be great. You want to have the place of honor at my right and left. You don't know what you're asking They don't understand what he's been teaching them about greatness in the kingdom. He says to them, are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? What cup is that? What cup is Jesus speaking of? Well, it's, it's a Philippians two, six through 11 cup. This is the cup that Christians drink because we follow Jesus. Philippians two, six through 11. It says, well, we'll start in verse five. Paul is exhorting the church. He says, have this mind among yourselves, church, 
which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, to be held on to, but he'd emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant. Well, what is the form of a servant? From God's perspective, being born in the likeness of men, we're servants. And being found in human form, what did Jesus do? He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. That's the cup. That he emptied himself from almighty God in all that he could do and all his power and all that stuff. He voluntarily didn't leave up. Didn't, didn't, he was 100% fully God, but he gave up his divine prerogative, so to speak, his power and all of that to become submissive to the will of his father. He became one of us and not only one of us, the least of all of us. Do you see? He emptied himself. He went all the way down. The person who created everything came down became, became part of the creation, so to speak. And in that he emptied himself, became obedient, even to the point of death on the cross. That was the cup, his complete humiliation, the complete emptying of himself, of his position and taking the form of a servant, becoming one of us being obedient to the point of death. Verse nine of Philippians two, just keep reading it. Therefore, because of that, because of that first part that we like to ignore what happens. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under the earth. And every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. The father, you don't know what you're asking are you able to drink the cup, which I am going to drink? And this is their answer. What did they say? We are able. They said, we're able. I don't think they had a clue what they're talking about, but Jesus did. And he saw beyond the moment and he sees beyond the moment back to their lack. He knows their lack of understanding and all this stuff. And what does he say to them? Verse 20 said, 23, he says, yeah, you will drink my cup. But to sit at my right hand and the left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared for my father. Jesus said to them, you're going to drink my cup. You are going to drink my cup. They don't know what the cup is. You will deny yourself. You will pick up your cross. You will follow me. You will suffer as you obey me. And it's interesting as you look at these two brothers, it's a picture. And I would say a picture of communion here. James was the first to die as a martyr. John didn't die. Isn't that interesting? James is the first to die and John, he didn't die. Well, he died in the end, obviously, but I mean, at a, all the other apostles were martyred. He wasn't really interesting. We see this picture in the old Testament 
as you're looking at uh, Joseph, when he gives the prophecy about the, the one uh, you had the baker and then you had the, the, uh, the wine taster. I forgot which one is which, but they had a dream. They said, Hey, interpret our dream. We have this dream. We've been stuck in jail with you. And he goes, okay, I'll give you this, this dream. Only just remember me, like tell the King I'm still here. Hello. But the dream was one of you in three days is going to be restored, uh, is going to die. And one of you in three days is going to be restored. <laughs> it's this picture of the death and the resurrection. And so you have here in this brother, this kind of picture of the gospel, the death and the life. He says, are you going to drink my cup? He says, you will. It's kind of a stretch there, but I see, I kind of see what the Lord was doing. James was beheaded by Agrippa or ran through with the sword in 44 AD being stabbed with the sword. John her church history says he might've been boiled alive and survived, but nevertheless, he was um, uh, captured and sent to the Island of Patmos in his old age, where he received the revelation, the book of revelation. God had plans, but Jesus knew what they did not. John would record the words of Jesus spoken to Martha at the, at the grave of her brother Lazarus. And John 11, 25 to 26, Jesus said to them, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he dies yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. It's that beautiful picture we have as Christians. The cup is the cross. And yet after the cross is the crown. We all take the cup. We all have been crucified with Christ and yet I no longer live, but it is Christ who lives in me. Galatians two 20, right? First is the cross. Then the crown first is this suffering. Then is the exaltation. Today is the day of suffering. So let the church, you know, your best life now, all this kind of stuff that we like to tell you. It's like, no, today's the day of suffering. Today is the day of self-denial. Today is the day of waiting, of longing, of praying, of waiting for the Lord and his return. But the kingdom is coming. The everlasting eternal kingdom is coming. Jesus tells them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at the right, right hand and to sit at my left is not mine to grant, but is prepared for those who, for whom it has been prepared by my father. So Jesus answers them about sitting next to him. Now people think that in this verse that Jesus is somehow, uh, they, they use it to say that Jesus isn't God. He has no authority. You can't make any decision at all. That's, that's not true. They're missing the point. What is the whole context is that he purposefully submitted to the father, although he was God. He emptied himself. He submitted to the father. He has emptied himself. What had been, what he had shared with the father from all creation from before time. That's what he had had. He emptied himself and became a servant and in servant. He's doing his father's will, even to the point of death. That's the point of this. And so Jesus is saying, it's not my call. It's whatever my father's will is. And by the way, if you read the other chapters, whatever the father does, I do. We're harmonized. And so what did the other disciples think of this wonderful proposition by James's mom? Oh, well, that makes total sense. You should sit there and you should sit there. But then the question is who sits the right and the left, right? Hmm. First class. 
Verse 24. And when the 10 heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. Listen, this is going to go on all night. I mean, all the way until the cross, they're still arguing about who's the greatest. This is going on even at the table when Jesus is doing the the community, he's instituting it. Then they start arguing about who's the greatest right then during communion. It's interesting that Paul in first Corinthians 11, when he's talking about communion, he's talking about the lack of unity and he's going, you guys don't get it. Just like the disciples didn't get it. He says, you aren't waiting for one another. Some of you are being drunk. The people who didn't have any food were being left out and ostracized. There wasn't any unity. It was about self, not selflessness. It didn't proclaim the picture of Christ that we leave. We give up so that others might live. That's Christianity. That's what he did. And so what do the other disciples think? They heard it. They became indignant at the two brothers. So Jesus is, has to go up. We're going to the cross. They're all upset. And what does he now do? Okay, guys, come here. <laughs> we got to huddle. This is, you got, we got to reteach you the same stuff again. Let's just do it. Right. Aren't you glad God's so patient with us? How many of you like have been walking with the Lord a long time? And then you read a verse after reading it for 10 years. And you're like, Oh, Anyone else? Every Saturday, Sunday when I'm studying. Yup. Oh, now I need to go teach these people this thing that I'm just now learning. That's what you meant. Oh, Lord, help me. And he does. He called them together. He says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. Verse 26, it shall not be so among you. We are doing things differently in the kingdom. We're doing things differently in the church, in his church. This is different. We got to do things differently. The Gentiles, those who don't know God, let's just kind of call it like that. Don't act like them. Don't do that. This is how they, this is their mode of operation. They use heavy words. They use hardened speech. They're brutal and there's selfish ambition in how they rule. He's just giving a cross section of how kings and rulers work in the world. This is what they do. They take power, they seize it and they subjugate people. That's how they rule. That's yes. Do we see that? And we may have a soft version of that sometimes, but we see it. The Gentile rules were known for their heavy handedness, their brutality, their selfish ambition. And Jesus says, it's not happening. It's not happening among you. That's not how we do things in the kingdom, but rather, and now here Jesus teaches us once again about the way that we lead in the kingdom, the way that we rule in the kingdom. How does that work? How does that work in this place, in this church? How does that work in our homes as Christians? How does that work in our leadership style? Verse 26, but whoever would be great among you must be your what? Servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your what? Slave. Two very politically correct words for our day today, servant and slave. Even as the son of man came not to be served, but to what serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. 
This is how your God defines greatness. And it's really important that we understand what he thinks of greatness because this is his church. We are his church. I'm not talking about just CCF. I'm talking about his church. Believers, how does he define greatness among us? Whoever's most visible. I'm obviously the greatest. What does he say? Two words that describe greatness in his kingdom. Servant and slave. There's a visceral reaction in the human heart to those ideas. Because within it, there's an unwillingness of a person to be subject to someone else in that way. And we understand that that's wrong, right? That subjugation of others, that kind of thing. That's how Gentiles rule. They subjugate people. They make them slaves and all those things. That's, that's how the world works. But Jesus says, that's not the way it works among us. You voluntarily become slaves. You voluntarily become servants. You come to that out of your own heart's volition. Why? Because that's how your king did it. He modeled it for us. He was the first of the servants. He was the greatest of the slaves. The one with the highest position who emptied himself and became the lowest. And if he's the model, this is why Jesus, when they're arguing about things at the very table, the night before he's about to die, what does he do? He wraps the thing around his waist. He gets on his hands and knees and he washes their feet. Still not getting it. This is greatness. This is greatness among us. Two words, servant and slave. The word, the word servant there is the, word, uh, is the Greek word diakonos, which is where we get the word what? Deacon. That's where we get the word deacon from. It's not someone who has a title in the church. It is someone who drank the cup, who empties themselves to serve and who loves their brothers and sisters. There are so many deacons in this church in that sense, doing things where they're emptying themselves for the Lord Jesus serving and no one knows it. Great. Are you in the kingdom of God? God sees you are great in his eyes. Now there's another word. The other word was even worse. It wasn't just a servant. It was a slave. Doulos is the word in the Greek, which also can be translated bond servant. How many of you have bond servant in your, a bond servant was one who is perpetually and permanently in servitude to someone permanently and perpetually in servitude. It wasn't a hired servant. It was a, perpetual servant. But the idea here isn't that it was a begrudged slavery. It wasn't a compulsory slavery. It was a willful and total submission of oneself to someone else. I am a 
bondservant of Jesus Christ. Does that sound familiar? Who's writing that kind of stuff? A lot of the apostles. This is what it means to be great in his kingdom, to be a servant, to be a bondservant of the Lord towards one another. This is our banner church. This is, this is the way we work. You want to be great. You serve, you serve. Well, I don't want to do that. Whatever. You know, I come from Calvary chapel. And one of the things about Chuck Smith that I loved about Chuck Smith is that, you know, the guys would watch him and he would be the one cleaning the toilets. He'd be the one cleaning up cigarette butts. He'd be the one sweeping up things and doing things around the weekend, changing light bulbs and all that kind of stuff. The greatest is the least. There is nothing below us. There's no, there's nothing that we can't do that we should not do. Now there is proper understanding of what God has called you to as the disciples found out in acts where they were busy waiting tables instead of doing what God had called them to serving with the word of God, which was more important because it is what God had called them to, to serve the body of Christ. But that doesn't mean that they were not willing and able and would serve at whatever capacity. There's just a heart of a servant. But this is how we work together. We serve one another in this body so that whatever God has called you to, you would do with the might and the strength that God has given to you. And this is how a body works. The arm doesn't work as a foot, but we serve one another. Amen. That's how it works. And so I get up here and I preach. Does that mean I'm the greatest? No, but how do I get up here and preach? What have you done for me? how you've supported me throughout the years, how you've encouraged me, how you've prayed for me, how you've bared with me, how you've loved my family, how you've cared for my kids, how you've laid down your lives that I might live. What's my response? Try to be faithful and feed the, feed you the word of God. That's my little part in this thing and all that you do so that you can grow and give and love and serve one another. So Jesus is telling them, you want to be exalted? What you really need to do is be a servant. I can do a lot of shameless plugs about children's ministry and all this kind of stuff. But I assume the Lord will work on your heart in this. Amen. But what keeps us from being a servant? What keeps us from being a slave? What keeps us from being those things? The same stuff as our brothers had here. Pride. Anyone else? That's beneath me. I don't have time for. No. I'm just going through the things that I go through in my own heart. Lord, forgive me. Amen. But we put self above one another. You know, when you go to a restaurant and I was thinking about this this week, you go to a restaurant. Have you ever had a, a server who just is so awesome? They are anticipating what you need. Almost to where you don't even know they're there, but they're just taking care of stuff. Isn't that awesome? I mean, yes, anybody? Like, they're just, they're watching you. They're waiting for you. They're anticipating, they actually care about you. They're, all that kind of stuff. It is, the, it is a great thing when that happens. But have you, have you ever had the other situation where you are a bother to them? 
You're an inconvenience. How are we in the church? What kind of server are we? Are we anticipating one another? Are we waiting and looking and seeing how we might use whatever God's given us to help one another? Or are you guys a bother? Are you an inconvenience? Is your app need to be deleted? So you can apply this to marriage. You can apply it to a hundred things. So what are we to be like? We're to be like that second example. What does God want? How can I bless him? What do his people need? How can I meet that need? You know, just being a hundred percent abandoned slave. It's awesome. <laughs> Embrace it. Say in your heart, I'm a slave. I'm the lowest of low. I'm a servant. I'm a foot washer. God teach me to be those things. You're the greatest. It's interesting. This is the way of the church. It's interesting that when Paul lays out the qualifications for church leadership in first Timothy, he speaks of elder qualifications and then he speaks of deacon qualifications. But then when he speaks about deacons, he says, before you become a deacon, that is someone who actually is officially serving in a capacity of leadership within a church. It seems in a servant leadership capacity, right? So let them first be tested. What? What do you mean tested? Do they have to take a little quiz? You want to see if they're actually living it out. You want to see if they're a servant. Is there the things that are too, too, too small. And just to let you know, this is how we do things. You're like, why is it so slow? Because the greater the responsibility, the more servant hood you need to have in your heart. Right? So he speaks of elder for qualification. He says, let them also be tested first and then let them serve as deacons. If they prove themselves blameless, test them because leaders lead people. You want to have a church that models Christ. You better have leaders that model Christ, which means what? We better be servants. Pray for your elders that we become servants of you greater and greater and greater capacity that we deny ourselves, that we pick up our cross, that we serve you. In the way that Christ says, amen. So it's interesting. This is how Paul and Timothy and James and everybody, this is how they address themselves. They wanted to put letters next to their name. You guys want to put letters next to your name when you're signing something to show your importance. This is what they do. Paul, a bond servant of Jesus Christ. Paul and Timothy, a bond servant. James and Peter, Bond servants of Jesus Christ, Jude, a bond servant. I'm a slave of Jesus writing to you. Oh, and guess who else? John. He finally gets it. I'm a slave of Jesus Christ. It's amazing how the Lord takes us on that journey. So to be great is to be a slave. Now quickly to finish out the chapter, verse 29. And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting on the roadside. When they had heard Jesus was passing by, they cried out, have mercy, Lord, have mercy on the son of David. And the crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on the son of David. Can you imagine that being blind? And that day and age, and you're just blind and you know, Jesus is coming because you've heard people talk about it. You don't, you're just kind of listening to the, the crowd as it's going by and 
All you can do is just cry out, Lord, have mercy on a son of David. And they're crying out in their despair. And everybody's telling them what? Yeah, shut up. That's exactly what they're telling them. Be quiet. Interesting though. Although they could not see with their eyes, what? They saw who he was. They knew. What did they call him? Son of David. What's that a term for? Christ, the Messiah, the promised one, have mercy on us. Lord, the Messiah, have mercy on us. They knew who he was, even though they were physically blind. Isn't that amazing? Verse 32, in stopping, Jesus called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? Wait a second. Who's serving who here? What do you want me to do for you? Jesus says, <laughs> Lord, let our eyes be open. And Jesus in pity, he touched their eyes and immediately they recovered their sight and they did what? And they followed him. Where is he going? To Jerusalem, to the cross. Just so fitting blind men receiving their sight. They knew they were blind. They had no power to make themselves see. And so they cried out to the Lord to have mercy. This is the gospel, everybody. We are helplessly spiritually blind. And all we can do when God reveals himself to us is cry out, have mercy on me. And what does God do in his pity? <laughs> he gives us sight. And then we follow him. It's a picture of salvation here. But as we've been going through the word lately, you know, the Lord has been showing me areas of spiritual blindness in my heart. You know, I have pride. I didn't know if you knew that. I know it's weird. You would never suspect it, <laughs> but God's been showing me I'm a prideful person, you know, and I, and I, and I kind of come to the reality that I'm, I'm powerless to change it. Anyone else kind of come to that man? You keep running into the same. Why am I so obstinate? Anybody else powerless to change it? I'm certain the spirit speaking to many of you as well, but the good news is in our blindness, Let's call out to the Lord. Lord, I see myself as one asking for this position or that position. Lord, I see that I don't get her this or that. You've revealed that to me. Have mercy on me. Change me from the inside out. Amen. And he'll have pity on us and he'll change us that we might have eyes to see and that we would follow him day after day. That's the cool thing about the, about Christianity, about the Lord is that he does all the heavy lifting such grace. And if you notice again, when they recovered their sight, they followed him. This is what it is. This is what a Christian is. We've been touched by the grace of God and we follow him. He's given us sight and we follow him. He's so good to us. Amen. A lot of areas we touched there. Lord would have you be a servant, a slave. Ask him how you might do that today, how you might repent. What keeps you in from doing that. Ask him to show you your own heart this morning as he's showing me. And let's, uh, let's pray for one another in this, right? The greatest is the least. And I just want you to know that um, I see many of you for what that's worth. <laughs> I see it. And you're great in my eyes. 
and you're great in each other's eyes. You're awesome. Don't let the world standard mess you up in here. Keep serving the Lord. Serve him. Love his people. You will never regret it in the end. He will repay you. He will repay you. Think about the prayer. When he talks about prayer, pray and pray in your closet. Why? Because what's done in secret, God will reveal in the open. No one might see you in a public position. Let's just say, although you might be called to a public position, keep serving him where you're at. Keep doing the things behind the scene and loving and service and devotion. him. he sees serve with the power that God has given you. If it's a physical ability, go do it. Amen. If it's speaking, speak as if they're the oracles of God, just do it in loving obedience to him. Thank you for being faithful to him. Thank you for loving me and loving one another. It's a joy to be a part of this fellowship. Amen. Father, we glorify you for the good work you've done here. Continue to do it. Lord, Teach us to be servants, to lay down our lives for one another in the short time you've given us to do that. And we ask this in the precious and mighty name of Jesus. Amen. If you need prayer, I encourage you to pray with one another. (laughs) Grab one another and say, I need prayer. But I'm also here too. God bless you. Have a wonderful week.